Welcome to the Resilient Birth Podcast. Hi, I'm Justine. And I'm Sarah. On this podcast, we navigate the world of trauma in the perinatal period, both personally and professionally. Justine and I believe what is uniquely beautiful about this podcast is that the you as our listener can be the perinatal professional or the you who desires to have a family, has a family, or may have lost children. We hope you can find what you need as you listen, connect with our vulnerability, and feel witnessed in others' experiences. We talk about trauma on this podcast, so please take care of yourself and meet yourself with kindness and grace. Hello and welcome to the Resilient Birth Podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Justine. And we welcome you to this episode. Um, I'm excited to hear about what took place in Justine's week this week that led her to choose the quote that she's bringing in today. And I'm excited to hear it for the first time with all of you. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to share too. Uh, As a reminder, we're going to be talking about some challenging things today. And so do take care of yourself. And and I will be talking about uh, sexual assault and uh, obstetric violence. Um, So if this isn't the episode for you today, then do honor what your heart and soul tells you right now. This week, I've been doing a lot of reading. I finally got some childcare and I had a chance to actually spend some time looking at some more recent articles that have come out. And I came across a uh, an interesting article that was looking at uh, obstetric violence and assault during birth and was comparing that with with sexual assault and the experiences of people who have had sexual assault. And I wanted to to bring it in today because one of the things I liked about about this article was that they use the the voices of the people who have experienced this to really inform their thinking around the the knowledge that they want to generate from that. And, And I just think that that is so important. I think that too often in in our research we we want to have these very large studies which is of course important as well but we have these very large studies and the people who have experienced things kind of get lost in the numbers and maybe the numbers are are hard for a lay person to interpret or hard for birth professionals to to really kind of understand what experiencing birth trauma or having ongoing symptoms of PTSD after birth, what that might even mean and look like. So they might see a a number that comes up, X number of people have experienced this, but then it doesn't necessarily mean anything to to you because the experience of that isn't in the the language of of the, the reporting of this research. And so I really like this research that that brings in the voices of um, the people who have experienced what we will be talking about. Uh, So if you're ready, I can share my quote. I'm ready. Okay. So um, the the article, the the first author on the article was Teresa Morris. And uh, it's in in the journal Social Problems. The title was um, Screaming No, No. It was literally like being raped, connecting sexual assault, trauma, and coerced obstetric procedures. And this is a, a quote from Amy, and it is the uh, who is in the study, and she is someone who has 
experienced what she describes as assault during her birth. And it is the quote that they actually end the the article with. She says, I mean the assault itself, the medically unnecessary and coerced cesarean surgery itself, all of that was awful and traumatic. But the lack of recognition of it being an assault is something that has been worse. It is like a trigger every time I hear, well, at least you have a healthy baby. And I'm like, yes, I do. I'm grateful. But what about me? Mm. And I just thought that that so powerfully identifies how we lose people who have experienced trauma in birth and how it's not just the moment itself, whether that's what you know this this person calls an, an assault during her birth. It's not that necessarily that moment, it could be some other trauma that might happen. It's not just that moment that we carry with us. It's also what happens afterwards and whether the the story of that trauma is understood and held as important, important to be talked about, important to be acknowledged, and that having a healthy baby doesn't mean that everything's okay and that it doesn't take away the fact that this happened. It doesn't wipe the slate clean. It doesn't mean that you don't carry with you the story. And uh, yeah, and so that's, I just, I, I found it, a, it just really succinctly brought that out in, to me. Yeah. I'm just sitting with Amy's words and I'm just feeling the, the, the weight and, um, Oh, small of a perspective that sometimes our healthcare system can look at using the term healthy. Like you have a healthy birthing person and a healthy baby. Well, is that like on the growth curve? Is that like, it, it feels very external. Like is the, is the appearance of these two individuals healthful looking? Then we're all good here. Mm-hmm. And Amy's voice is reminding us that there's so much deeper than that story. Amy having to carry this inside of her and this experience inside of her, how is that impacting her overall emotional, mental, physical well-being, connection with child, mm-hmm. ability to like feed and care for herself and be- like there's so many layers that this can trickle into that are not getting looked at because outwardly, if baby's hitting all their markers and if Amy answers how most of us answer probably when the doctor asks us how we're doing at those visits, how we, I'm okay. Appearance is that life is okay. Mm-hmm. But inside, what about me? And when I say I'm not okay, even like if I tell you I'm not okay, what happened to me was not okay. This was an assault. We get back, oh, it couldn't have been. Like, it can't have been an assault because it happened during birth rather than 
in some other space where as a society we've kind of decided that violence can happen but the idea that that violence can happen during birth that coercion and non-consensual procedures that 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 is violence i think it's still so new to so many people that i think that that it's even hard for us to recognize it ourselves it's not even recognized right she says it's not recognized as an assault maybe you know for some people anyway they they hear things like well they must have had to do that to save your life or to save your baby baby's life and i know that there are times when things have to happen and things have to happen fast but there is still a way of making sure that the person whose body this is feels their autonomy and feels in control as much as possible and is given true informed consent and i feel as though you know when we when we say that or when we we don't recognize the harm that can happen in certain spaces right they don't understand that harm can happen in in a hospital space then it is like gaslighting. Mm-hmm. It d- denies people's experiences. And that has its own echoes of sexual assault as well, right? So when we say like this was a sexual assault or that, you know, I was harmed in this way, then then people so often hear, hear back, well, you put yourself in that situation, or, you know, at least it wasn't a, as bad as something else. At least it wasn't X. At least you didn't die. It could have been worse. And so the parallels, I think, are are very strong for me, uh, particularly like reading this article, the, the parallels between the way in which we think about sexual assault and the way in which we think about violence during birth, the, the denial that that is that these things exist and that there is harm done and that people then live with these experiences and are expected to be grateful that it wasn't worse and to just move on with their lives and be okay i'm wondering if you would feel comfortable sharing Amy's quote again, because I'm listening to you speak and I'm listening to the gaslighting that can come around these issues or the not feeling believed or heard or valued and validated. And to use your voice and, and give it to this research is so vitally necessary and important. And I want to honor on this podcast that we hear not only Amy, but everybody who spoke up for this. And I would like to bring that voice in again so we can hear it again and hold that weight again and validate that this person is being seen and heard. So she says, I mean the assault itself, the medically unnecessary and coerced cesarean surgery itself. All of that was awful and traumatic. But the lack of recognition of it being an assault is something that has been worse. It's like a trigger 
every time I hear, well, at least you have a healthy baby. And I'm like, yes, I do. I'm grateful. But what about me? And, uh, and I think one of the reasons why, you know, her voice and the other voices in this article, and there were other people who, who contributed, other, other women who contributed to the, the article, the reason that they speak, I think, so powerfully to me is I have my own experience of someone doing something in my first birth that wasn't consensual. And so uh, that did also connect on a sort of psychological level to my previous experience of sexual assault. And so I guess one of the reasons also for bringing these voices in is because they really resonated with my own experience of of these these two moments in my life layering one on top of the other. And then afterwards of finding that really difficult to process and finding it hard to find the right language to share about it because I was so grateful to have a healthy baby and I was also grateful for the fact that we made it through birth, you know, alive and, and, and that, that, you know, we were quote unquote taken care of. Um, and that was very, con- that's a very confusing emotional space to be in as an individual to, to feel both grateful that nothing worse happened and that there were people there to ensure that the kind of worst case scenarios of birth were not, um, weren't my story. And yet to have also experienced someone not remove their hand during a vaginal exam, even despite me crying out and asking them and telling them to stop. And for that person not to know that it was really necessary for me not to have her continue, even though I'm sure for her, her goal was to help. And so that's also difficult to process as well. And so I, I think that the, the stories in this article really brought back and, and resonated with me when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And I, as I hear you speak, I'm thinking about like <clears throat> me and you truly believe that most people are not walking around with like malice intent when they're in these situations but where did we lose the capacity to like listen to someone's no or prioritize what we're doing over someone else's consent? And there's that power dynamic in the space you're in. And 
I'm reading the the book Good Inside for my children and it's about parenting, but it's really coming into me now. Like if someone is saying no, what's your most generous interpretation as Dr. Becky would say of like why this is happening and like understanding that if you're saying no, there's probably a very valid reason behind that. And so that should take precedent. Even if you don't understand where the no is coming from, that's not necessary because the most generous interpretation is that your no negates anything else that this person wants to do. Mm-hmm. And checking in, and maybe if they checked in with you and said why they had to do, thought they had to do X, there could have been a dialogue and then you could have consented to what you felt comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But instead, there's not even any room for repair or connection or trust building because it's like this erasure of your request, mm-hmm. which leaves such a lasting imprint, particularly on those who have walked with trauma and not had their words heard and validated and here in this very power dynamic space, once again, someone is stealing your no. Mm-hmm. And I think this power dynamic that you've brought into our conversation is so vital because um, it's actually something that they talk about in, in the article as well. So, so I want to acknowledge that too, because when you have such an unequal balance of power, then the responsibility cannot lie with the person who has the least power in the relationship to protect themselves from harm, from being coerced or being forced or being pushed to things that they are not comfortable with. It can't lie with that that person. So it can't lie with with me as as the birth giver, knowing enough about birth to be able to advocate for myself effectively. Or me, I mean, both of us, we we help people create birth plans, but but it can't lie, the responsibility can't lie with the birth giver creating the best birth plan, the most the birth plan that is most likely to generate empathy and a willingness on the on the part of the providers to to be supportive of um, this individual's wishes. It can't lie with me as the birth giver to to be able to say no and be effective in my no. Like it's not my responsibility when there is such an unequal balance of power. And so really it is both the provider's responsibility or the person who is whose job it is to support people through this process, the process of giving birth and safely and, and um, respectfully. It, it, it's their, you know, it's their job. So it's, it's both their job, but it, and it's also the, the institution's job that they are working within to create a, a system in which that, that kind of level of support is is even possible where the the where that person can be trauma informed where there's a culture of thinking about the patient or or the birth givers informed consent as paramount where individual care is at the at the center of their the thinking, right, and that's an that needs to happen at an institutional level, because we know that the providers are also working within a system that makes it 
really, really challenging for them to be able to practice in in a way that that they would want to. And I, and I think that too much of the time we we say, you know, we think about, well, what can individuals do to lessen their chances of trauma during birth? And there are things that people can do. It's, it, it's, not, it's not that it's a, a hopeless situation. If you're listening to this podcast and, and you are pregnant, there are things that you can do to really decrease your chances of having a, a traumatic birth and increase your chances of having a, a positive birth experience. But the responsibility for that cannot lie with the person who has the least amount of power in this relationship. It has to be, it has to be held by the, the providers. It has to be held by the institutions within which they, they work. And I think that that was also something that comes out quite strongly in the article and that I feel quite strongly as an individual, as someone who's given birth and as somebody who, who helps people to have positive birth experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think your point is really important, like that it's a shift in the system we're looking at. And when I have birthed in different systems, I've had very different experiences. And I unfortunately had a very traumatic birth that involved coercion with my second child, then the most beautiful healing hospital birth with my daughter. And so like, there are definitely ways we can walk towards and and protect that space, but it can't just rest on the shoulders of the birth giver. And I think about Amy's words again, like, what about me? And I just think that when we get into this systemic system and we just look at birth as another medical procedure, we lose the personhood and we lose the, the presence that this is actually the meeting of two souls that will never meet again like this is the day that you get to lay eyes on this little one and that's a really momentous occasion for people and where did that get lost along the way and I reflect back on my second birth that involved coercion and I remember the moment where I everything just it was already shifting in that direction but then it just shifted it over the edge when the medical writer said to me, you need to push him out now or else. And I was going for a back. And so in my mind, I'm like, what does or, or, or else mean? Does that mean I'm going to go have a C-section? Does it mean you're going to give me an episiotomy? Like, does it mean there's something like wrong with baby? Are we getting for like, what is happening? But there was no information given. So it could have been in the provider's mind, like her or else could have been I see your temperature rising and that's making me nervous. We might have to give you a, a dose of antibiotics. Like, but since that or else was just left open and I wasn't looked at as a person who needed information and grounding that this or else didn't need to be this catastrophic, scary thing. I just pushed that baby out and I tore significantly because my body was like to keep you safe even though he's not ready, you are just going to push this baby out because at least then you know no other harm is going to happen. And that lived inside me for a year after. I lost that first year with my son because I couldn't shake 
the depth of the darkness of that birth that intertwined with my trauma history. Mm-hmm. And my partner witnessed it too. And we had some connection around it, but he didn't have that story of trauma that lived inside of him. So he was able to shake it, let go, heal from it, where for me, it just so wrapped around those other stories where I was coerced and where I was harmed and where my body just got hurt by other people. And that was a horrible way to have to live that first year with my child. And it's something that I'm so angry got stolen from me because it could have been a simple why you feel I need to push now. And I would have had that year back. Mm. But instead, you said, need to push him out now or else. And I didn't want you to harm me. So I pushed him out now. As you're speaking, when I hear that language, I feel a threat. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a or else and and the or else is a or else I will harm you. And I think that story of yours really powerfully shows that 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 harm can come not just from someone doing something to you and forcing you physically, but also from a perceived threat. And it doesn't really matter what, I mean, you know, intentions do matter, but they also, it doesn't matter. what that provider's intention was because what was received from you was that mingling with your trauma history and it was received as a i I think as a threat and that's why that language is just so important yeah because when you forget that we're all carrying stories you don't know how your words are going to impact someone. And for me or else, and not knowing that next step, when you come from a history of intimate partner violence, where you're trying to read their body language, you're trying to read their tone, all these things that, that would keep you safe. Well, one, like I'm in a very medicalized thing and they have a mask on and there's a power dynamic there. And I, I can't read you behind all of this cloaking and I can't really read your tone because I'm trying to push through contractions and you're saying or else and I have no clue how to keep my body safe besides me doing it on my own Mm -hmm. and so you've put me in a position once again where like I have to protect myself in this moment when we should be a team here Mm -hmm. helping the soul come into this world in the safest way possible for everyone versus here we go again. Here's where I have to pull up my bootstraps and make sure I come out on the other side of this as unscathed as I can be. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too whether there was whether that urgency of that moment was quite as necessary to be that, right? So it's like, I know that there are times in birth when there is a need for speed and that there are times when things have to move quickly. But 
as you say, that there is a different language that could be used. And of course not, you know, there can be language that we use and that does unintentionally bring up somebody's story. And there will be times when we say something that we didn't even realize could impact somebody in this way. But at the same time, an or else is is it's pretty obvious. <laughs> like, like it's it's not, you know, like this is language that really shouldn't really come out of your mouth if you are someone working with people giving birth. And and I just think that we just need to be really mindful of the fact that um, people are carrying stories. People's no does matter. And you cannot use the language of a perpetrator during birth. Like you, you just... You just can't like you, you you just can't do it. It's it's not language that is at all appropriate. Mm-hmm. And given that power dynamic we've been talking about, it it should also be something that's really recognized about the, the impact mm. that these things can have. And to counterpoint the story that I just shared, I want to share my daughter's birth, like I described, mm-hmm. was a was a healing experience. But there was a time where the midwife did not wasn't able to honor my no. I was feeling really strong birthing on my side, but I couldn't see it, but baby was stuck. And so she asked me to move on all fours and I said, no. And then she was like, I need you to move on all fours now. And this was one of those speedy situations. So like they just moved me on all fours. And afterwards she sat down next to me and she said, I want you to know that I heard your no. I want you to know that. And here's why I couldn't listen to your no in that moment and why it had to move so quick. And she explained to me why the positioning was helpful for getting baby out with the shoulder being stuck. And and she goes, I just want to make sure you heard me. I heard your no. And if I could have, I would have listened to it. But I had to get you and baby into a position that was helpful for both of you. But know that I heard it. And I don't hold any of the same pain because while, yes, my no is not respected, people move my body, the repair after and the acknowledgement that my no had been heard, but here's why I couldn't consent in this moment, was so validating and freeing that like I stayed completely grounded and connected to myself and my baby. It was the most beautiful postpartum experience. And that gift of her acknowledgement helped mm-hmm. that blossom. And what's so powerful about your story, to, to return for a moment to, to Amy's words and, and the, the fact that she says that there was this lack of recognition of it being assault, not that your midwife used that language, but that that she recognized that there had been something that happened that you could have carried out of that experience. Right. And she recognized that and she said, yes, it did happen. And I heard you. And this is why, like, like, like your experience was true. You said no, and I didn't honor it. 
like that experience was real and it mattered and it mattered enough for me to come and talk to you about it afterwards. And so there's that piece of that recognition in the repair that I think is really powerful about your story. It wasn't just, here's why we did this. And you're wrong to have any feelings about it. <laughs> you're, you know, you should be grateful for us, for say to us for saving you and baby, right? Like that's you can imagine a, an attitude of that coming into that conversation. Be you should be grateful. It doesn't matter that you said no. But she didn't do that. She 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 held the potential hurt that was in that experience. And your, your story also reminds me of what I was looking for after this birth where I had this non-consensual experiences and that had reactivated my own sexual assault history. And what I had been looking for after the birth was that piece of that recognition. And so what I did was I asked her to read my notes because I thought that maybe I mean, I don't now looking back, I'm like, this doesn't really make sense that they would do this. But I thought that maybe they would have written down how, how emotionally upset I was after, or they would have written down how difficult these moments, uh, they, how difficult these moments were, how challenging I had found vaginal exams, how there had been this um, this breach of trust, that maybe that that had been recorded in my notes. I, I wanted to see them. I wanted to see something of the, the horror of that birth in my notes. And instead, what I received from them was a normal vaginal delivery, no problems, all good. And it was the the birth that was in my notes was unrecognizable to me. And I completely acknowledge that those notes are not the space where they're recording that, right? So that's that's not their purpose. But I was looking for something that I didn't get. I was looking for a recognition that what had happened had had an impact on me that wasn't okay. Yeah, it's like what Amy was saying, that the the non-acknowledgement and the not seeing was far worse than the acts that were done mm-hmm. upon her. And the, and the research supports that too, that it's not about like how we birth or how the baby comes into this world or what procedures are used. It's how was the birth held in the space by those around them? And I hear you looking at your notes, searching for like one more chance potential to like heal and feel seen. Mm-hmm. And then to see just a standard note when your birth didn't feel like a standard birth was once again, probably scratching at this wound of like, I am not being seen in this space. Like, what about me? You know? And and how do we get providers to realize that how people are birthing and how many stories we've heard that are similar to what we're sharing today 
shouldn't be standard. And me and you are not advocating for like big changes mm-hmm. amongst the like birthing community and the, and the medical system. But can we have a bit more thought about Amy, you, I, other people who have stories or who are left with stories because of this experience and like see us and hear us and have it be worth enough to change? Mm-hmm. And to know that the change is small in many ways. It's small and it's hard because there is this pressure from systems and institutions that make it really hard. But at the same time, it's a shift in language. It's a shift here and there in perspective. It's an understanding that my no really, really matters. That what is happening to me in birth is one of the most powerful and intimate and vulnerable moments of my life where I am physically in a completely dependent position upon those around me. And so when I gather enough courage to say no in that moment, then that 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 no is so precious. It it has to be honored. And if it can be honored in the moment during a vaginal exam, there is no emergency here. This is a moment where you remove yourself, you remove your hand, and you check in because there is no emergency. This is a there's time to do one. If there's time to do one, there's time to stop one. Or, as in your example, if if it isn't honored, then what is the repair? What is the acknowledgement that that, that mattered? Mm-hmm. Because I want to honor that my midwife in that space had 100% more medical knowledge and understanding of what was happening in that moment and what to do when a baby is stuck like that. And in no way, shape, or form are we advocating to take away that knowledge or shift that knowledge of what is these important ways that we do need to shift in birth and maybe we can't honor someone in that moment. But it was a simple two-minute conversation afterwards that changed the whole trajectory of the rest of my relationship with this child. I had carry so much guilt around not having that first year with my son and he is now going to be five and I that weight is still lives inside of me and I'm never going to get that repair from that provider but I don't have to carry that weight with my daughter because of a two-minute conversation mm-hmm. that's changed my life two minutes so the changes we're asking for are small Mm-hmm. So with that, Sarah, what are you going to be taking from our conversation today? I mean, it's, I think it's something that like I feel deeply 
like deeply down inside of me, but I just want to bring it into this space. And Amy's words just reminds me of it so much that when we are working with clients and they give us a gift of their vulnerability and sharing what they need, or if they share part of a story, to listen and be with that open heart and be that person who believes in their truth, who respects what they're asking for, and just truly hears them, it is so powerfully healing. And we need to make sure that that's how we're meeting our clients with that true open-hearted hearing and belief in them. And for me, I think because these resonances between these moments in birth where there is coercion or when a no isn't respected or when there's a threat made, because of that vulnerability, because there is the, you know, the intimate parts of our bodies are involved. There is this strong resonance with sexual assault. And this is something I experienced as well. It's the message that it's, it's so important for us to say it's not your fault because so often when we experience sexual assault, we think like, I could have, should have done it differently. I, I shouldn't have gone on that date. I, I should have protected myself. I should have done this. I should have done that. It is my fault. Well, we hear that message. And, and the same thing happens for us in birth as well. You know, I should have written a better birth plan. I should have advocated better. I, sh- I shouldn't have pushed so hard. I should have chosen a different provider. I should have birthed in a different hospital. And I think that this message of it, it isn't your fault and that it isn't also, it isn't your responsibility. This That responsibility is held with those who hold power. It's held at the institutional level. It's held with the the people, by the people in the room that that are there to to help and support you through this experience. And so when, when we deny people's experiences, when we say, Oh, that couldn't have been assault, or it couldn't that that you couldn't have felt like that. You shouldn't feel like this. You should feel something else. Some of the message that we're also giving is you shouldn't feel the way you feel. It's your fault for thinking this way. It's your fault for even perceiving this as something that I'm going to tell you it wasn't. And that also is not your fault. Yeah. Mm. Makes me just want to take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. We hope all the people who listen today take a deep breath for themselves. Maybe go and do something comforting or caring for themselves as they walk away from this conversation today. It's been a heavy one. Mm-hmm. But a necessary one. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.
the next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. And if you liked today's content, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and share with a friend or colleague. If anything came up for you on today's episode, please take a moment today to take care of yourself, reach out to some supports in your community, and if necessary, reach out to a local mental health professional.